The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Now, back in 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement inspired businesses to make a significant change in the way that we did business. You probably remember it. We talked a lot about it on the show. New roles were created in diversity, equity, and inclusion in an effort to build more diverse work environments. In fact, those roles increased by a whopping 55%, according to the Society for Human Resources Management. In other words, it seemed like the tide was really turning. Unfortunately, and you know where this is going, this did not last. In education, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action, which allowed colleges and universities to consider race in admissions earlier just this year. And in the workplace, some companies removed these roles altogether, and DEI professionals across industries have lost their jobs rapidly. This sudden loss in momentum begs the question, how do we rethink DEI in a way that's more sustainable? Our guest today would say the answer lies in recognition and the understanding of common decency. I think raising the wider awareness that we're all human beings is in part the way to go about it, to bring back to the center of the workplace the notion that we all want dignity. And, you know, the, the awareness that although the workplace can be extremely competitive, nevertheless, we all gain by having a quality of life that, uh, you know, leads us to humanize each other and create better conditions for us. That's Dr. Michelle Lamont. She's a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Harvard University. And she's the author of Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. Michelle's deeply invested in the human process of deciding who matters and how this shapes us socially. Her book is the result of almost 40 years of research, speaking to cultural icons from entertainment, social justice, and more on the power of recognition. And the first thing you should know about Michelle is that she doesn't think DEI programs are all that effective. Here's Michelle. I uh, draw on research by Frank Dobbin and Sandra Kellef. They've had access to voluminous amount of data on which corporations were able to create more diversity and the level of uh, mid-level managers. And they found that uh, forcing people to have uh, uh, diversity training was very counterproductive because often people felt shamed and became resentful to have to to be submitted to this training. On the other hand, given people mentors and having very open conversation about um, who feels ignored or invisible, uh, you know, having people whose job it is, and those people should not only be people of color, any you know, middle-level manager, it should be part of their job to assure that they create a climate of belonging. So it presumes a very, very different approach to uh, to organizing the workplace than uh, what has been done with the DEI policies. 
I appreciated the way that you really doubled down on this idea of mentorship and how important it was. But one thing that I would love to understand more is how we train mentors to be able to be comfortable having these conversations in the first place. Or frankly, they don't need to be comfortable with it, but to do Mm -hmm. it in a respectful way that allows everybody to rise to the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a very big challenge. And I think one of the objectives of the book is really to raise awareness about how recognition is central to people being happy in the workplace. People want to feel like uh, they are there with their whole being. If, for instance, they're caregivers, the, res- the, the employer will be respectful enough of the multi-dimensionality of their life to give them flexibility to bring their kids to, to the doctor or their elderly parents. I think it really requires raising the awareness that creating a, a culture of belonging in the workplace uh, results in employees that are more uh, loyal and are more invested in their work, in part because they feel more respected in the workplace. I imagine that one aspect to current DEI approaches is that it removes and even creates sort of a distance, an authority or a distance around the topics so that you're spoken to and so that you can learn. And you are really advocating for basically putting people in community with each other as the way to do this. Often underrepresented groups are left with the burden of educating others. I'll give you my example. I am a gay woman and have always been very out about that and have also been annoyed, especially earlier in my career, when people have misspoken and I have been left with the sort of the burden of having to sort of reframe how they're thinking about my lifestyle, right? Absolutely. And there's a book by Adia Wingfield, who's a wonderful sociologist, titled Flatlining, which documents very clearly how in the medical area, uh, people of color feel extremely burdened by the fact that not only do they have to do their job, but on top of it, they are responsible for educating uh, their peers and their organization about how to uh, deal with people who are not the white middle-class male. And um, if anything, it becomes, if if this task of uh, bringing people on board is viewed as falling on the shoulders of people who have quote-unquote non-standard identity, it just adds to the wear and tear of working in the workplace. And we know that uh, post Black Lives Matter, right now, in the world of uh, corporation, there's a lot of lassitude and also pessimism about the future of all this because many, many people who are expert in DEI just feel like there's a backlash and mm-hmm. uh, uh, not that much progress is being made. So there's really a great need to to revisit how these things are being put in place now. So- and I think raising the wider awareness that we're all human beings is in part the way to go about it, to bring back to the center of the workplace the notion that we all want dignity. Yeah. And, you know, the, the awareness that although the workplace can be extremely competitive, nevertheless, we all gain by having a quality of life that, uh, you know, leads us to humanize each other and create better conditions for us to do our best work, but also to be happier as people. You know, it's a great starting point for any conversation. Here we are in the fall of 2023. It has been three years since the Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. um, moment. I would say national moment, but truly was an international moment. By and large, where is corporate America in particular in its response? 
immediately after, there was a huge move, movement of, I would say, elite, cohort of elite replacement in a number of leading philanthropic organizations, for instance. I think of all the organizations that I interact with as a social scientist that fund the work of our graduate students. They all really you know, created new programs to fund uh, historically black colleges and to focus less on the elite universities such as mine that had always benefited from more support from those organizations. Given especially the uh, the various uh, decisions from the Supreme Court that were made in late June that were viewed as you backlash, you know, against affirmative action, uh, when it came to admission, the place of affirmative action in the college admission or the access to services for trans people. And then I was back to back also the case of, uh, you know, students loan that were not going to be uh, pardoned. So I wrote actually an op-ed to the LA Times, which was very much denouncing all these decisions as doing exactly the same thing, which is to to send loud and clear a message to a population, the American population, that is becoming increasingly more diverse every day, that this growing diversity of the population was still at the margin and how counterproductive this was. So I think this is also characteristic of what's happening in many organizations. Many people are predicting that uh, the Supreme Court will now also take stance on affirmative action in the workplace as well, now that the door has been opened. Uh, fortunately, there's a lot of people who want still a very diverse workplace, and we will find ways around these laws. We'll be right back with more from Michelle Lamont. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. It's fair to say current companies had lackluster attempts at fostering inclusion. Luckily, there's a group of people coming up that refuse to stand for anything else. Michelle is so optimistic about Gen Z and millennials' relationship with work, so much so that she spent a whole chapter of her book on the next generation and their impact on how we see each other. We spoke about the many labor strikes unfolding this year. 
The writer's strike, for example, which was still happening when we spoke, and also the auto workers' strike. If today's labor climate is any indication, the younger generation has a lot to teach everyone about creating a more fair and inclusive society. We're talking just a few days after the uh, unions in the automobile industry uh, voted for this uh, massive strike, the last, the largest strike for, you know, since several uh, decades. Yeah. And um, I was reading recently on the, the forces that are leading to this massive new movements and unionization, which uh, is partly led by Gen Zs who are so committed to creating a, a society that is more inclusive and millennials as well. So after the great resignation, corporations want to keep these younger workers involved. And that means also really listening to pressures to try to create a workplace that is more inclusive. And uh, if you look at the recent uh, workers' movements in Amazon, workers were not only asking for better salaries, but also better condition, having breaks that would allow them to go to the restroom, for instance, which is about dignity. It's not only about material conditions. So part of this movement has to do with a sea of youth uh, around the age of your the young people in your own home, Michelle, who are beginning to move into the workforce and simply expect something different. Exactly. And we know that with the current strike with the writers in Hollywood, one of the reasons that they are striking is that they have, uh, they realize that their employers are uh, trying to attract further investment by saying we've done better than ever at the same time as they are cutting the benefits and the, the capacity for writers to get trained and their work is becoming more and more piecemeal and there's a kind of uh, deterioration of the quality of their work that the employers treat them as replaceable workers as opposed to professionals who actually gain great expertise from being on the set all the time and contributing as writers to the cultural uh, creation. So that's also a claim that has to do with recognition and being there as you know, full people as opposed to tools for the production of films and movies that can just be replaceable. Yeah. Well, so what does change look like in that context? And what advice might you have for listeners to our show who are wondering how they can be agents of change in their own small communities? Mm -hmm. I think what we're learning from the current moment and from the last few years is the importance of individual action at the macro level. On a day-to-day -day basis, as we lead our lives, people get involved in all kinds of activities and movements that are contributing to producing a more equal society. So, for instance, in Somerville, one of the suburbs of Boston nearby, there's a big movement to deliberate about the budget of the municipality in which there's a lot of millennials involved in the negotiation. So we know that it's a generation that is very involved in politics at the local level because they think that they can create changes there much better than they can in D.C., which is viewed as very distant, but also in the hands of a gerontocracy. So I think people are creating community gardens. There's just a lot of action 
which is partly a reaction to the great concern that many people have about climate change, that political action should be also local because that's what we can have a direct impact on. I know my own, I live in Brookline, which is part of the suburbs of Boston, if you will, and there's a big movement around affordable housing, you know, trying to create a community that, and this comes from the governor, who's a Republican, who created the new law that requires that communities have more affordable housing in close proximity to public transportation. And we have Mayor Wu, who is the first woman of color to be mayor of Boston, who has also made affordable housing one of her priorities. And this is a state which has an extremely high level of class segregation. The, the neighborhoods and the various towns are very, very diversified and, you know, segregated by class and race. It's very interesting to hear you talk about this. My brother is a millennial in Somerville being very oh, okay. politically active at the local level, um, working very hard so on you school. Know what so I'm yeah, about. you talk about that. I'm like, I'm I know I know what you're talking about. Right at the top of the book, you talk about the American dream, where it came from, what it means, who it serves, and who it really doesn't serve. And I wonder if you might frame that up for us a bit. Yeah. Well, I point to the fact that, you know, the, the decades that followed World War II with many, many European and Asian immigrants coming to the U.S., Many immigrants come here because of the American dream. They believe that it's a country of exceptionalism where everything is possible and they come here to achieve abundance and to to be upwardly mobile. But since the 2008 recession, the younger generation have experienced that it's extremely unlikely that they will ever buy a house. And for them, this seems like a very distant goal. And many people just don't want that goal either. They talk about the hedonistic treadmill of consumption, which just leads you to want more and more where you're never satisfied anyway. So what's the point? And with the global warming and climate disasters looming, the importance of diminishing consumption is very uh, looming for them as well. So I think it's in that context that alternative sources of hope are absolutely needed because they are not mobilized by a life that would be organized around, you know, living the American dream. It just seems like an illusion. And survey data show that although a lot of people think still that they can achieve the American dream, they think their children won't, and they think for the larger generation, the larger population, it's an illusion. Right. So um, there's really a need to invent new collective dream. And the argument of the book is in part that inclusion really anchors what a lot of these people want now. It is a way of imagining life that doesn't put capitalism at the center of it, right? Exactly. At the center of an identity conversation. Capitalism is de facto at the center of many of our lives because we need to pay yeah. for most things that sustain us. Yeah. Um, but there is a push to move away from capitalism as the driver of our identities. Yes. And in the book, I talk about what I call scripts of self, the way the models that are given to us about what defines an ideal life. And I talk about the kind of script, neoliberal script of self that is incarnated by Trump which represents someone who's hyper-competitive, who's extremely rich, and who really values a kind of social Darwinism yeah. as a model for society. And it's a model that also values meritocracy because it presumes that those who are self-reliant and hardworking succeed, and those who do not succeed don't have these moral qualities. So it connects success with moral qualities that low-income people wouldn't have. And meritocracy makes abstraction of the, you know, the 
the burdens that people have. If your parents are middle class, you're they're, you're much more likely to graduate without college debts, you know, etc. Right. So um, there's alternative to this. And one alternative is to have a conception of self that is more oriented toward developing equal, more horizontal relationship with your coworkers, for instance. And many American workers think of themselves as losers because it's very hard to have a sense of direction if you don't have a college degree in American society. And, you know, more than 60% of Americans don't have college degrees, depending on what age cohort you look at. So where are they going to find hope? Well, they can find hope. You know, I did the, I wrote a book on the uh, American working class called The Dignity of Working Man, for which I did a lot of interviews in the the New York suburbs and the Paris suburbs. And yeah. one thing that kept coming back is you have to treat humans like humans. You know, so this desire of celebrating what we all have uh, in common, you know, actually the, the saying is treat people as people. So a, a really a deep desire to humanize each other. Right. So I think lifting this up as a theme is very important. Well, it's that's the power of recognition. And yet there are so many mechanisms now that allow us to recede and retreat from each other. Where do you see the hopeful narratives around people coming together? Well, they come from all these people that I've interviewed. Of course, there's backlash as well. We know, for instance, right now, you know, Christian nationalism, which is also white Christian nationalism, is a center where uh, there's a discourse, apparent discourse of acceptance, but in fact, the undercurrent is very much, you know, one of segregation and people really sticking with people like themselves and a lot of veil racism. So there's, at the same time, we know that for the last 60, 70 years, there's been a huge increase in integration. I mentioned same-sex marriage already. You know, of course, there's still a lot of homophobia throughout American society, but there's been a lot of progress at many levels. And I think this pendulum of reaction and counter-reaction is very much part of the movement, just as for, you know, second the second wave feminism. No one talked about non-binary people. It was really not on the agenda but at the same time, you had many people whose identity was erased and not recognized because they were <laughs> non-binary people at the time, but there was no language to, to talk about them or for them to claim different ways of participating in society. So I think it's you, you have to look at the, this progress that is happening, even despite the backlash. Um, and looking at the progress is where we where we see hope in action, not hope as something in the future to grab for, but hope is exactly. happening now, right? Exactly. Um, you know, you finish your book by saying that people have to think about their own search for recognition and how it will contribute to shaping the life that they want um, and allow the people they love to flourish. Who do you mm -hmm. see doing that well? So there's a new study I was just reading about a few days ago. How do you combat this mental health crisis that so many young people are experiencing? And the answer is really make them understand that they matter to you and that they matter to others. They matter in society. And that's possible if you create a world where people want to matter. I think seeing homeless people on the street as we see in most large American cities really creates a feeling of... Uh, 
alienation and meaninglessness. Who wants to live in a world where other human beings are treated like this, you know? So I think it's part of a broader movement toward thinking differently about, you know, thinking the world we want to live in is actually achievable as opposed to giving up. That was Michelle Lamont. Her new book, Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World, is out now. I love what Michelle had to say about the benefits of connecting one-on-one. Often when we talk about DEI, companies miss the mark by lumping groups of people together without regarding unique individuals. Maybe it would behoove us to focus more resources on building those diverse workforces and then supporting us, workers, as we strengthen our relationships with each other. This is part of Michelle's belief that we must learn to humanize each other as the core to whatever progress we will make in becoming more inclusive. I'm also still thinking about what Michelle calls neoliberal scripts of self, the way that whether we perceive ourselves as worthy is so closely connected to economic achievement. I mean, just think about the heroes in the TV shows we watch, like Succession. When's the last time you watched a Succession but, like, about a working-class hero? Michelle is asking us, ultimately, to become conscious of these stories that we tell ourselves so that we might reject them and embrace new ones about new heroes. Let's get into this more at this week's Office Hours. I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find the link, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com, and we'll help you out. Now, before you go, we have a book segment for you this week. We once again bring back one of my very favorite people on LinkedIn's editorial team, our books editor, Scott Ulster. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Good. So is it okay if I call you that, our books editor? It sounds cool. I feel honored. Right? <laughs> yeah. And and I guess we don't have an official books editor here, but it has been true as long as I've been here and much longer that um, when people want to send books for consideration to LinkedIn, a lot of times, Scott, they send them to you. Yeah, they somehow find me. I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that you have a sick reading pile. And um, it always amuses me to discover what you choose to pick up of your own volition off that pile What are you bringing us this week? So today I am going to talk a little bit about a book called The Visionaries. And The Visionaries is written by a philosopher named Wolfram Eilenberger. And he's based in Germany. And he decided to uh, feature and focus on the work of four women thinkers who were each trying to grapple with the same challenge, the same question uh, in the decade and the, the years leading up to World War II. So four women thinkers grappling with the same question at roughly the same period in history, and that period was, goodness, about 80 years ago now. Yes. So it's a little bit of a weird pick, I know, but but stick with me here. So these, these, uh, these thinkers are, some of them are household names, uh, and some may not be. So they're uh, Simone Weil, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, yep. Hannah Arendt, Mm-hmm. And Ayn Rand. Yeah, so roughly <laughs> heard of all of them. Yeah, yeah, you know they're they're known. You know if you're if you're into that, uh, into the philosophical world, uh, and if you're in the U.S., I mean Ayn Rand has a very special um, spot 
when it comes to the U.S. And and Eilenberger even mentions in the book that Rand, uh, the Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged, they still regularly appear appear on the bestseller lists. Yes, Americans are into it. Yes, and what is it? How would you sum up it? So this is the thing. Let's go to the question. The question that all these thinkers have to deal with is how do I deal with my own needs and the needs of others at a time where, in the years leading up to World War II, the world as these people knew it, as, as the world knew it, was essentially coming apart. Yeah. So the, that big question is, what do I owe other people? And so with Ayn Rand, she's on one like polar opposite of the side of, of the equation when it comes to the response to that question. Right. So for her, she's all about, uh, I need to satisfy my own needs Right. And that is the best path forward in the world, is to be focused radically on my own needs. You can only be there for yourself. All of the rest of them, their, their lives were turned upside down uh, by the revolutions in Russia. And she was the one of her family to make it to the U.S. So for her, I, I, I get the sense from the book, she was grappling with this, this question of, you know, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Yeah. But the thing is, that's not the only way you can answer this really critical question. And uh, on the complete opposite side, there's Simone Weil, who's... Uh, I'm least familiar with Simone Weil. Same here. And you know what? She's really the hero of this book. Um, and, and I spoke to Eilenberger a couple of weeks ago, and he, he talked about how he sort of kept that in mind when he was putting the book together. For her, she's, she's an incredibly selfless person. Um, for her, the answer to that question is... I will always be for others, that that no matter what, you need to make sure that all others are taken care of. And I think she takes it to an extreme, incredibly giving human being and an incredibly thoughtful writer. All of these women, you know, they were doing philosophy as practitioners. None of them had academic positions, really. Uh, some, some taught, you know, at the sort of the equivalent of high school level, but they weren't like at universities. They all thought of philosophy as something that was really relevant to the here and now. Scott, what's the significance to gender here? Why these four women? They were perhaps some of the most brilliant philosophy uh, students of their time, some of the best writers of their time. And they were doing philosophy and thinking very deeply at a moment where being a woman in academia or being a woman with academic interests was extraordinarily difficult, all at a time while the world was falling apart. I hear that. And it leads me to wonder, Scott, why now? What is significant about this book for us? Yeah. So all of these, all of these women were writing and trying to grapple with this problem of how do we make sense of a world that is coming apart at the seams? And how do we negotiate our needs with the needs of others? And the time we live in right now, whether we're grappling with challenges of climate change or border conflicts or one nation invading another, those same questions, they are so, so relevant. I mean, a lot of these, these writers may not be household names, certainly today, but the questions and the challenges that they were grappling with are, are pretty, um, pretty relevant to the present day. Yeah. You know, you say that, and I think so much about how I need to remember that as scared as I might feel about any of the external forces I can't control in the world as it exists today, um, my parents also had fears about the moments they lived in in history, and my grandparents had fears about the moments they lived in in history. Absolutely. 
One thing that's clear is that all four of these thinkers, they all reach different conclusions, but all of them have something to teach us and how they got there. What's one small thing you're going to take away from this book? One of the lessons or one of the things that it's mentioned in the book that really has stuck with me comes from Hannah Arendt. And she talks about having the courage to keep your eyes open, even when you feel like you're living in a nightmare, even when you'd prefer to have those eyes closed, to have to have that courage to pay attention and to tell the truth as it is to the best of your ability is essential. And I just found that to be just one of the most powerful insights uh, from, from a thinker I've, I haven't really explored too much. Yeah, well put. Well, thank you so much, Scott. We look forward to the next time. Thanks, Jesse. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered by Asaf Gidron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer helps give our show a sense of dignity. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Hoop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.